listening to Red Flag Radio. Welcome back. There's been a little um, interregnum, would be the fancy word for it, but a break between episodes, but we are back and uh, we are recording on Indigenous land and acknowledge, as we always do, that this land was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back, Liam Ward, who is again on the uh, dials or whatever we call it in a technical way, buttons computer on the other end who produces all of our episodes and we have some exciting news for 2023 we've got a new host joining us on red flag radio emma norton who has been on several episodes if you uh like the sound of her before hopefully you'll continue to enjoy her um hosting the show she's on an apprenticeship no not really unpaid intern no not really um anyway yeah we're going to be Recording this one and then a couple more before I'm off um, to the UK for a little while. So I might check in uh, while I'm over there. But, yeah, that's the plan. So hopefully for people who have been um, waiting for some more Red Flag Radio content, you will start to get a couple of episodes a month from now on and in 2023 we'll be back. So if people have recommendations for the show or topics, um, we'll be getting some better channels of communication set up and letting you know as soon as we can about all of that. So let's talk about today's episode. Um, Jerem Small, who's obviously been on the podcast before, is back and I'd recommend listening to some of his previous episodes among the 88 that we have um, on our back catalogue. Jerem is the uh, industrial organiser for Socialist Alternative um, as well as a former construction worker and member of the um, construction union. Jerem uh, was also part of the campaign to save the um, to stop the uranium mine in Jabaluka and that episode is one of my favorite of the previous of all of the ones that I've done uh, with Fleur Taylor as well on that one. If you can uh, if you haven't listened, I would recommend it. And Jerem, you may have seen <laughs> along with my face, uh, was very heavily featured in the Victorian election in the northern metropolitan region because he was the Victorian socialist candidate. Um, me and him were on a giant billboard next to each other <laughs> on the corner of Wellington Parade, if anyone happened to have the privilege of driving past that around November last year. Um, so welcome back, Jerem. How did you go in the election? You should update people. Yeah, cheers, Roz. Good to see you across a crowded Zoom call, and Emma and Liam, of course. Um, the election went all right. Uh, it went well, in fact. I, I didn't get elected. I'm not uh, a member of parliament receiving the average wage of a skilled worker. Um, I'm still the industrial organiser for Socialist Alternative. Um, we got, like, the, the guy who won the spot that I was going for um, got about 300 primary votes more than me. So out of in Northern Metro Upper House region um, in the Victorian Parliament. There's five seats. Uh, I came, uh, well, actually, actually, I came fifth. So Labor, Liberal, Greens, 
scumbag Adam Somurek, corrupt guy who got kicked out of the Labor Party because he stacked so many branches, he got the seat. Um, he got a lot of right-wing preferences, so um, it wasn't just the fact that he got a high primary vote, but we were definitely in the mix. Out of 23 parties running for Victorian Socialists to come fifth in Northern Metro, it's a pretty great achievement. Uh, we got over 4% in each of the lower house seats in Northern Metro. We got results, some spectacular results, actually. 8% in Broadmeadows, 8.1% in Brunswick. Um, individual booths, 20% uh, at Upfield Booth in Dallas, where, you know, we've we've won decent votes in the past. Um, and in the West, we did pretty well as well. Liz Walsh, it looked like for a while during the count, Liz Walsh, she was our candidate in the West, was actually a chance to get into the parliament. Uh, she ended up getting pipped at the post by legalised cannabis by about 1,600 votes, which given, you know, I think Liz had about uh, 17,000 primary votes. So we're definitely in the mix to actually make a breakthrough and do something that no one's achieved in this country for a heck of a long time, which is to get a socialist from outside of the Labor Party into the parliament. We missed out this time. We've got some great votes, nearly 10% in uh, Footscray uh, in the West. Uh, I, think it, I think it was around 7% in Coroit, uh, 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 St Albans, about the same, like a bunch of places that had literally never seen a socialist uh, campaign mm -hmm. before. And we got extremely credible votes, including booth votes of, you know, 17.5%. Um, that we'll forget where that was out at Deer Park, I think, in the West. Um, so we did really well. 190,000 doors knocked, a heck, hell of a lot of conversations. We really put socialism on the map. Didn't get in this time, but don't just watch this space. Check out the Facebook page for Victorian Socialists if you're in Melbourne. Uh, we're, and we're, we've already got some activities uh, ticking over for the new year. So, yeah. yeah. And if you're a, um, if you're a young person... In Melbourne, and it's the time of year, um, we're in February, if you're preparing to start uni or go back to uni and you voted Victorian Socialists, you can also do more than just vote. You can get involved with one of the clubs that are on campus as well. So um, O-Weeks will have stalls. Just go ask a couple of people where the socialists are and somebody will have already spoken to them because we're pretty proactive like that. So, yeah, um, vote socialist but also be more active and get involved. All right, so this, the topic for today I think is a really interesting one in the current um, political climate and I guess the current international situation of thinking about climate change, um, thinking about workers' power and thinking about the connections between the two which socialists make. So we're really kind of looking at a case study, I guess in some ways, of how workers can impact um, the environmental movement, but also just generally of workers' power and what that can look like and what that can mean around some of these more questions that are not necessarily associated, I think, with workers' struggle. So the Green Bands and the Builders Labourers Federation of New South Wales is kind of legendary around the left and so people probably will have heard this term Green, green Bands. Um, but I think we've I just wanted to explore it in a bit more detail to think about kind of how did how did they get to be like that and how did they make this happen. So let's start with just this green bands um, concept, the idea that a bunch of people who are labourers on construction sites can save um, areas that are now considered sites of significant natural and cultural value 
what kind of places did they save and why does it matter now that these places were saved, I guess, to start with? Well, I reckon if you've uh, if listeners are in Sydney or ever been to Sydney, uh, one place to start is uh, Circular Quay. And if you're standing at Circular Quay and you look to your left, you're seeing you're looking at the rocks. And looking at it now, it's a it's a tourist trap. That but there's a, a, a massive pubs, there's museums, uh, there's cultural institutions. Um, there's still a tiny bit of public housing sort of t- tucked away in there. If the, if the Builders' Labourers had not done what they did, um, if the Builders' Labourers' Federation had never existed and hadn't put their green bands on, instead of that historic area alive with, you know, you know culture and hanging out and, um, you know, small-scale development, you'd be looking at a monstrous uh, multi-billion dollar uh, office and shopping mall development. Um so that's one sort of difference. And if you're standing at Circular Quay, that's looking at your left to the rocks. Um, one, you know, the, one of the most historic areas in wide Australia's history uh, was saved by working class people, builders, labourers especially, saying, no, we're not donkeys, we're not robots, we are human beings, and we are going to be the ones who determine how our labour is used, um, which is sort of an easy thing to say, but it's actually an incredible achievement uh, for, for any of that to happen. Um, and then if you look to the right, of course, you, and you're standing at Circular Quay, of course, you're looking at Sydney Opera House, one of the iconic buildings of Australia and one of the iconic buildings of the world. And that the last two years of that construction site was run under a system of workers' control uh, that had been won by the Builders' Labourers' Federation. We can talk about the detail later. There's other places that people can look. But, like, right there, in the sort of, you know, iconic heart of Sydney, you're looking at the results of, um, of what workers' power looks like. And the, the green bands, of course, extended far beyond that. Um, Centennial Park, which is a, a huge swathe of parkland, um, sort of you know, near the centre of Sydney, a third of that was going to be concreted over uh, by the state Liberal government in the 1970s, so that they could put a bid in for the um, I think it was the 19, oh, anyways, 1990 or 1988 Olympics or something like that. That was community action, and then. Builders, labourers, and other construction workers saying, "We're not going to build it. We value parkland over your concrete jungle, and um, this is not going to happen." And it didn't happen. Uh, public housing in um, in Woolloomooloo, which is not far from Circular Quay, in uh, uh, down in uh, Botany, like a bunch of places uh, in 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 a, in inner Sydney, uh, were saved for low cost housing and public housing by builders, labourers taking action, and a bunch of things that. Um, you know, like like I love those examples because they're very tangible. You can look at them. You can touch the buildings that were saved. Um, you can walk the streets that were saved by uh, builders, labourers taking action. There's a bunch of actions that they took which maybe aren't so tangible but are also significant. You used to we, We're all used to going on protest marches. You know, we spend half our life going on protest marches and a good thing too. All sorts of change ha- happens because of that. The Builders Labourers Federation in this era, the early 1970s, in New South Wales had an attitude of it's not good enough just to protest. You have to actually try to stop the thing from happening. Um, so when the French government uh, recommenced nuclear testing in the Pacific, there were protests all over Australia in the early 1970s. The Builders Labourers Federation put a ban on the development of a shopping centre in northern Sydney because there was a French company involved in the development. And they said until this French company comes out, stridently condemns the French government's nuclear testing 
uh, lobbies the French government to stop it. We're not lifting a finger um, on this particular construction site. Um, and, you know, that, that made a political impact. Jails. You know, this is a very hard uh, issue. You know, there's a lot of law and order uh, sort of propaganda around. When the Bathurst riots happened in 1974, when the, the regime of brutality and corruption, um, the obscene regime, which, is, which had really ruled uh, New South Wales prisons for years and in a lot of ways still does, when that was blown apart by a prisoner uprising in Bathurst in 1974, the Builders Labourers Federation refused to do any work to rebuild that jail until there'd been, um, well, their demand was for the Prisoners Action Group to be involved in um, a program of reform within New South Wales prisons. Uh, they banned the pouring of the concrete roof on the Katingal Maximum Security Jail in Long Bay, uh, the Long Bay Jail Complex uh, for similar reasons. So it's a... I mean, that, that's just the start of a list. Like you, when we're talking about the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation in the early 70s, we're talking about one of the real high points of working class struggle and what it, why it matters. That all of that matters in its own right to save those buildings, to have that political impact. But it also matters as um, an example of what working class people can do and what working class people look like when... We lift our horizons a little from the, you know, oh, my God, get through the next day, get through the next year, hope no one gets sick, you know, hopefully things get a little bit better, to when we lift our horizons to the realisation that we're the ones that do all the goddamn work, we have the power and we're going to use that power, um, you know, to benefit ourselves but also to benefit the entire um, the entire working class and, in fact, the broader community. Um, so it matters for those reasons. It also matters, I reckon, because it's a political roadmap of you know, in general, um, how we approach unionism and social movements. So it's one of the great stories. It certainly is. I think it also just smashes the stereotype around working class people and what they care about or what we care about. Um, and I, so I guess how does that, happen in or how do we explain that in a way because people just think you've listed a whole range of you know what people might consider kind of complicated political issues like the french um, nuclear rearmament program um what sites should be considered of cultural importance um like prisoners having a say in the running of their jails like these are not just like straightforward political questions to kind of come at so how is it that a bunch of construction workers cared about all of these things kind of what was the politics of that I guess because that's where my yeah that's where my mind goes and I'm sure people in terms of all of the stereotypes they've heard would not expect this out of these kind of workers yeah yeah no you're right like the stereotype of the working class is um like if you get paid you're going to just do whatever who cares what it is yeah that's right and that's the reality like of class power you know the in order to have any sort of decent life we have to sell our labor power and we're not the ones that determine how that labor power is is deployed really so you know as a builder's laborer myself for a bunch of years oh my god the number of shopping malls and extensions on the goddamn casino that I built, you know, while there was a housing crisis developing in Melbourne. We just, it's not, it's not like they ask us in advance, oh, would you rather be building hospitals and low-cost secure housing or do you want to build another extension? So um, how that happens, that's a long story and we should spend a bit of time talking about the sort of historical 
um, sequence of events because it's not like the Builders Labourers Federation that period 1970 to 74 that came there's a couple of decades before that that um, that you know that led up to that and we should go through that I think in a bit of detail um, the the one the, there's a lot written about the Builders Labourers Federation there's a book by Verity Bergman and Meredith Bergman and they've got a list of I think it's about half a dozen factors that they say you know sort of fed into that militancy or led to that situation and there's a there's a whole bunch of factors that they identify um, the, the the rise of labourers as an occupational group all of a sudden labourers you know yes it's important to fetch material for the, the tradespeople and, and feed them the stuff but all of a sudden buildings were being built out of concrete the builders labourers controlled the concrete and so their industrial power went up there were new skills in construction uh, with these massive high-rise developments like you see down on circular key um, the size of the holes was bigger, the size of sites was bigger, the concentration of those sites were, was bigger, so builders' labourers sort of got together in bigger numbers. There's the political radicalism of the times that we should talk about as well. You know, this is the late 60s and early 70s, a time of revolt and revolution around the world. But the one factor that was really crucial in that mix that the workers themselves and the militants themselves had much direct control over was the extent of political organisation. So the fact that there were radical political currents in that workforce, and in particular, um, you know, personified in, in Jack Mundy, um, the secretary of the Builders Labourers Federation, he was a communist. He was a member of the Communist Party of Australia. And not just that, he was a member of the CPA that, um, like that whole leadership of the Builders Labourers Federation that won power, that won control of the branch in 1961, they hadn't been... They weren't this ossified leadership that had been hanging on to uh, leadership positions in the trade union movement through thick and thin, you know, hanging on like grim death for decades, um, like some of the communists had. So they had a much more freewheeling and radical sort of style. Um, so I think all of that is important. Um, but that last point, I think it's crucial to emphasise radical politics. You do not get the sort of thing that we're talking about Um without the conscious intervention of socialists um, and, and, you know, in fact of revolutionaries. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. So let's go to the story of how they went from what how the builders' labourers were organised, I guess, in the 1950s to what ended up looking like in the, 90, in the end of the 60s, as you say, in the early 70s. Yeah. This could be a whole episode, so let's see what we can cover. Indeed, but, yeah. 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 There's a there's a talk which I gave about this which people can listen to. I, I guess the links will be in the um, the comments to this show. Uh, that There's a yeah. talk I gave a couple of years ago that had a lot of detail on this, but to, to, to try to summarise, I think you could break it into three parts. Um, so the Builders Labourers Federation, like a lot of unions, were basically overwhelmed by the Great Depression in the 1930s. And they emerged uh, after World War II as a union in New South Wales, at least, that was run by a bunch of pro-employer thugs. They were basically an arm of, you know, the building bosses um, and, and a bunch of crims and out for themselves. So... That was a story in the 40s and 50s. Um, phase, if you're telling the builder's story, 
if you're talking about the Builders Labourers Federation in, in sort of three phases, phase one really is forming a rank and file group. Um, and literally, I think there were eight people at the first meeting. Um, so that's uh, a tiny group of people that set out to transform their union from uh, one that is run by a bunch of gangsters into an effective fighting force. There's eight people at their first meeting in 1951. And they start doing, they get a newsletter out. Um, they start going around the sites. They start, you know, trying to find other people that want to tra- change the union. They go along to their, their branch meetings. It's a whole lot of shenanigans. There's bashings, there's rigged elections and so on. Eventually, by 1957, uh, they've got a paid organiser. Uh, Jack Mundy is, is, you know, paid by job collections of the rank and file to go around and do the sorts of things that the union should be doing. Over time, they build up strength, they build up credibility, they get some organisers in, and phase two really starts in 1961 when they they left ticket, including a bunch of communists, win win control of the union. Even from that point, though, they're starting from a pretty low ebb. So they, uh, I think in the entire state of New South Wales in 1961, there's a couple of dozen delegates of the Builders Labourers Federation on job sites. And this is the 60s. Like, there's a lot of construction going on. So it's a shell of a union. They start building up delegate structures, finding decent people, getting them in as delegates, calling them in every month or a couple of months for delegate conferences to try to knit that group of militants together. A lot of it, like, they have progressive political positions, um, like other Communist Party unions. People might have seen the lovely footage of Paul Robeson, the first singer ever to sing at the Sydney Opera House in 1960. That was a BWIU, uh, a communist control union, which had organised that. So the Builders Labourers Federation are part of a whole bunch of um, uh, political uh, initiatives, you know, for against the threat of nuclear war, for Aboriginal rights and so on. Um, but it's the core of what they're doing is just rebuilding their industrial strength from a very low base, looking after site amenities, looking after making sure people get the right rate of pay, uh, looking after site allowances, starting to look at uh, health and safety. So really that is phase three. Uh, sorry, really that is phase two. Phase three kicks off in 1970 uh, with a crucial dispute over wages. And it's really like you're not going to get all of those um, extraordinary inspiring political positions or the green bands without that margins dispute in 1970. So I'm not sure whether we should talk about that in a bit of detail or skip along. Yeah, I think that is important because it's really that dispute which is about the core thing of pay and conditions that gives the union the kind of strength to build from that in those other political directions and kind of pick up social questions and feel like it can win which I yeah. think is such a huge part of it. So, so yeah, tell us a bit about the struggle around wages and what that looked like. Yeah. Margins, so, as they called it. Yeah, that's right. And the, so the, the margin, the, the, the tradespeople, the tradesmen, uh, the carpenters and so on were, were paid a particular rate and the builders' labourers uh, had their pay fixed at a rate 75% of that of a, of, of a tradesperson. So if they were getting... Yeah, well, anyway, th- that's what it was. And the builders' labourers' argument was, well, look, we're essential to the site. You know, we're not just pushing a broom or, you know, doing a, digging a bit of a ditch here and there. We are skilled, ticketed labourers, many of us, um, and our work is essential. We deserve the same pay as the tradespeople, as the tradesmen. So the Builders' Labourers Federation claim in 1970 was for a $6 a week increase for the ticketed trade, so 
dogmen, uh, riggers, the people who land the loads from the cranes that you see on construction sites, scaffolders, um, and $5 a week extra pay, extra pay for every other builder's labourer. So that would have achieved parity for the so-called skilled labourers, the ones with um, you know specialist skills, and would have got uh, the rest to about 95% of the tradesman's wage. So it's basically saying the builder's labourers are the equal of the tradespeople. So big inspiring claim which you obviously need for a big inspiring strike. Like people have to be motivated, you know, and not monetarily it matters, but also in terms of the dignity that, um, that they were looking after. But the thing that really made the margin strike uh, stand out in 1970 was the way that the builders' labourers conducted the strike. It, they, first of all, they took out the entire industry. Very commonly in construction, industrial disputes will start, or in any industry, will start at, you know, one particular employer, they'll put the squeeze on that, a bunch of bands, you know, there'll be an industrial tussle, they'll, the union will establish a condition at one particular employer and then spread it through the industry. No. This was, so most of the workers in that situation actually stay passive. There's just a small minority at any one time involved in the dispute. The margins dispute was conducted by taking the entire industry out. The entire industry stopped. Um, and there were at least weekly mass meetings to consider the course of the strike, um, and there were daily meetings of uh, an open activist committee that involved, uh, at, at times, hundreds of Builders Labourers Federations. That's meeting every single day, meeting every morning, going out to stop particular jobs, coming back in the afternoon to talk about how that went and plan for the next day. So the Builders Labourers Federation in New South Wales at the start of the strike had about 2,500 members. So that's Having a couple of hundred members involved, that's a very high proportion of active membership. The the strike, the BLF thought they would win the strike in a week by taking the entire industry out. Nothing much happened after two weeks into the third week and now all of a sudden you've got substantial amounts of scabbing, especially in the suburbs. The, the central business district of Sydney is still sewn up tight but there's a problem in the suburbs and, you know, it's causing demoralisation to the members. Other unions are saying, look, what's happening here? Like, you know, we're supporting you. We're missing out on work by supporting you in the city. All over the suburbs, we see builders, labourers working. What's going on? So many unions at that point would just say, well, it's all too difficult. We'll take a substandard deal. But the couple of hundred uh, builders, labourers who were running the dispute said, no, we are going to go out and stop that work from happening in the suburbs. And if we can't stop that work from happening in the suburbs, we're going to demolish that work. This is not legitimate work. This is work done by scabs, uh, and we're going to go out and destroy it. And <laughs> that was incredibly effective and incredibly popular. Uh, and after two weeks of that, uh, and there's a lot of stories, like there's this, this too many stories of sites being occupied, um, you know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's one of the great story, one of the great strikes, the margin strike, and they emerge with the Builders Labourers Federation wins. Their initial claim, remember, was for six dollars and five dollars. What they get is six dollars thirty and five dollars eighty. So it's a pretty damn successful strike when you end up with more than what yeah. you claimed like in, in the first place. Unthinkable today, isn't it? Like, yeah. We want ten percent pay rise. Okay, you can give us eleven. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not really working like that at the moment. No. So, and the, the aftermath of that strike was the the confidence of the builders' labourers just went sky high. The, there's a beautiful movie again. The link will be in the the, um, the notes for this program, "Rocking the Foundations," and that 
movie is just, it changed my life actually, seeing that movie. Um, mm. And everyone should watch it. There's a, I think it's Tom Hogan, uh, one of the BLF uh, stalwarts and organisers for a time. Uh, he recounts the effect of the margin strike. And he said, before that strike, if someone asked you what, what what you did for a living, you just oh you just sort of shuffle a bit and you know look down at your shoes and say oh just a builder's labourer. After that strike, you'd hold your head up and say I'm a bloody BL. Like membership of the Builders Labourers Federation went from two thousand five hundred at the start of nineteen seventy to nine thousand by the end of the year. Partly because you know people go okay they got the goods, but partly because every decent unionist and every militant felt confident to say hey. You're getting six bucks extra a week. You're getting what a tradesman gets. You have to be in the union. Um, so it was really, it was really that dispute, both the fact that it won and the mass character of it. The fact that built, you know, it wasn't just won by a select few, you know, stopping a concrete pour here and there. Though I'm sure that did happen. Um, it was the entire industry that won it, and that really transformed the mentality of the BLs and laid the basis for the green bands and everything that followed after. Yeah, I think that question of feeling a sense of your own power that you can achieve collectively is just like, yeah, it's just unbelievable in terms of the transformation of people's own consciousness, their commitment to organising and their sense that even something that seems unbeatable is beatable. And I think that was kind of spread more widely across the workers' movement in that period. So I wonder if you could just say a few things about the context of the late 60s, early 70s, because there were it wasn't just the BLs who were starting to feel that impossible things were suddenly possible. Yeah, well, and just on that, on the comment that you made, the importance of, of people feeling their own power, because there, there's a sort of, oh, I don't know, this crappy argument that still sometimes comes up around the left of, oh, wages disputes, oh, they're so apolitical, we should be, you know, we want our unions to be political with a big P, and yeah, we do want our unions to be political. The foundation for that is workers knowing that they have the power to win shit and that we are actually more powerful than the boss if we organise collectively. And if that happens around a wages dispute, and it often does happen around a wages dispute, um, that that can and should be the foundation for other stuff. So never let yeah. anyone poo-poo the importance of wages. And it's measurable, which I think is really important if um, you're a worker because there's things that are less tangible, less measurable, that union bosses can pretend are great advances, mm -hmm. but you can't fake a wage increase or not. Everyone yeah. knows what it is. Everyone knows if you can live off it or not. Yeah. And it's also the foundation for the rest of your life outside of work. Can you live a decent life? Can you pay your bills? Are you stressed about that the whole time? Well, if you can take the pressure off that, which I'm sure was the case for a lot of these workers then, that suddenly you're not worried about the next bill coming up or your repayment of, you know, your payment of your rent. So you do get to think about something else, which might be, hang on a second, what's going on with prisoners? What's going on with people wanting to destroy parts of Sydney that shouldn't be destroyed? So I think there is also, it is political <laughs> to get yeah. to win wages. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it's a pretty concrete measure of class power, isn't it? Like how, how much of how much is going to you and how much is going to the boss. And this period, uh, 70 to 74, I mean, there were strikes all over the place. The, the BLF was was really 
you know, one of the leading unions, but it, you know, wasn't the only union conducting, uh, you know, very dramatic strikes in this era. And this was a period in Australian history where workers got the biggest share of national production ever. You, anyway, it's been a different story since then. But in terms of like, it's an important point that the the, the times that they were in, because you know, as as Marx observed, uh, we do make our own history, but we do so in circumstances not of our own choosing. And the it's so it's important to emphasise, like 1968, you've got the greatest pile of military and monetary power that has ever existed on the face of the earth. The United States government humiliated by a peasant army in Vietnam. And you can't, like, that's one of the great differences, I think, between um, b- between politics then and now. Like, there's no shortage of issues now that require urgent attention and require a mass movement. But having it demonstrated in practice that supposedly the most powerful force in the world is actually not all-powerful, that the US government can be defeated, this has a radicalising effect on... Um, on a minority of people, but a large minority of people right around the world. So you see, you know, internationally, the the massive general strikes in France in 1968, um, a wave of struggles in Britain and Italy, um, in a series of other countries. In Australia, crucially, in 1969, there's, uh, well, there's a very substantial uh, and very radical uh, movement of students and young people against the Vietnam War and and, and conscription happening at this time and developing... Uh, force. Um, And then crucially in 1969, in the midst of all of this, you have a a rolling nationwide general strike that uh, freed uh, a union leader, Clary O'Shea, uh, the leader of the tramways union here in in Melbourne anyway, um, that there'd been anti-union laws in place in Australia uh, since the end of World War II called the Penal Powers. And there's, I mean, it's the whole story. I think you might have done a podcast on this or uh, Mm -hmm. Ros already. If you haven't, you should. Um, about yeah, we haven't actually. God yeah. damn, okay. Well, see if we can get Katie on, who's one of the great historians of this incredible strike. Anyway, short version. There's uh, uh, a unionist is sent to jail for being a bit slow to pay the fines under this law, uh, Clara Shea, and after a week of rolling and escalating general strikes around Australia, he's freed. And the penal powers, which had held uh, unions in check for... A generation really um, that was still that was still the law of the land, but no boss was actually going to use them, and so that was um, both an important event politically, um, just in terms of showing God if you stick together and do it in enough numbers, you know the working class can actually achieve incredible things, but also important industrially. And Jack Mundy very consciously, uh, you know, argued. The Clary O'Shea dispute creates a new situation. So that was 1969. That means that the our log of claims, the builders' labourers' log of claims in 1970, should be much more ambitious. We can go for, you know, we can really uh, set a new benchmark for builders' labourers across the country. So that was important as well. So that both the political and the industrial side, um, you know, uh, of that sort of radicalisation were important. And also saying, I'm going to sort of referred to this earlier on, the fact that like other Communist Party controlled unions, uh, the BWIU, and the, there was a, a bunch of others at this time, BWIU was the main carpenters union, so it's important in the um, construction industry. Like a lot of them had been under communist control since the 1930s. Those union leaders um, had sort of, you know, just battened down the hatches, um, 
you know, had often not pursued a militant policy just in order to survive the the brutal reality of, of the Cold War in Australia in the 1950s. So they developed, I mean, union officials, you know, being in that position generally has a conservatising effect. I think that's doubly, triply the case when you have to survive a massive political and ideological onslaught uh, through the Cold War. Jack Mundy and his comrades hadn't been through that. They won control in 1961 when the Cold War was sort of fading. So they were developing their industrial strength just at the time that the radical movements were sort of cresting. So in a way, the, the Builders Labourers Federation, like... Nothing about it was automatic. All of it was, you know, the conscious creation of working class militants, um, you know, many hundreds, many thousands of them. Um, but they were the circumstances not of their choosing that they were operating in, um, you know, included those colossal events, those, those real radicalising events. And that was an important part of the story as well. Yeah. So I guess if we fast forward, to today, and like you said, there's heaps more to read about the BLF and and how they um, transformed themselves by their own conscious activities and started to transform the world around them that people should follow up. But just to kind of finish with a few comments about how this connects with people who want to do something today, people who are worried about climate change, what this case study kind of teaches us around you know, how to approach some of these major challenges. We don't have a BLF equivalent today to lead the way. So what what should we do? Yeah, the, like, well, I guess a couple of things. Like, first of all, I think that that model of mass radical social movement intersects with mass radical workers' movement and, you know, the green bands and everything we've been talking about ensues. That is still an incredibly useful model to have. Um, pretty much any campaign I'm involved in, that is the, the sort of mental roadmap that I've got. Like, we only win anything in a capitalist society by creating a crisis for our rulers. And the force that is the most effective in doing that is workers' power at the point of production um, because it stops the flow of profits, which is the motor of the entire capitalist system. So... That's always what you've got to be pointing towards. Um, now, so I, I think the, the BLF is a useful lesson in, in, just in that regard. Like, you know, so you're always looking to incre in, increase the radicalization of the movement and its mass character. And that's not always an easy equation to work out exactly what steps to take, but you're always trying to do that. You're always trying to link it with effective workers' organisation. Um, and that's not always easy either, partly because of the slump of the uh, in the union movement that we've had, uh, you know, for many years now. The very consciously organised policy of class collaboration, which has dominated our unions uh, since you know the eighties, really. So, but still, having that mental roadmap means, like you referred to the Jabaluka campaign uh, before, myself and Fleur and other people uh, who were involved in that campaign. Um, had a very conscious strategy of, you know, mass civil disobedience up at the mine site, this uranium mine that, you know, uh, the Mirai Aboriginal people and the many supporters around Australia managed to stop. Um, so mass civil disobedience, arrests at the mine site, uh, uh, mass actions, including civil disobedience in Melbourne, where the company was located. Um, and part of those blockades that we did of the uh, the the North Limited, the company that was trying to develop the Jabaluk uranium mine, 
they had their headquarters down in St Kilda Road, so we quite regularly blockaded their headquarters just to shut them down for a day. And every time we did that, the you know <laughs> stock market price of their shares fell. It was wonderful. Um, that was partly how we won. Part of our conscious uh, strategy at that time was to go up and down St Kilda Road with um, CFMEU organisers, and this was when John Cummins was still around. There was you know. Uh, you know, there was there was a bunch of construction work happening, so we did a series of of work site meetings on construction sites on St Kilda Road, and we didn't get thousands of construction workers turning out as a result, but we got um, you know a few dozens, uh, and we got uh, shop stewards, we got organisers, and when we were getting hammered by the police, it was actually really important that the next day we were able to come back. Um, you know, with a whole bunch of construction workers leading our march um, around that place. So even if it's on a smaller scale, it's still a strategy that you can try to put into operation. Now, I think there's an important qualifier on that, which is sometimes it can sort of, it can come across like it's like a, you know, you go to Ikea and you buy some prefabricated kit and, oh, you've got the working class power here, you've got the social movement here, you get out the Allen keys, you just bolt them together and, you know, bang, there you go, you know, here we go, we're going to reenact the BLF green bands. No, unfortunately, those components need to be manufactured. And so both of those components need a serious amount of work, both the radical social movement and mass social movement side of things and, you know, probably even more so actually, rebuilding um, the sort of unionism uh, that, the, that the Builders Labourers Federation represented. And so having looked up at the lofty heights of, you know, okay, the Builders Labourers Federation, and we've got to look down at our feet and work out concretely what is the, the first step that you can do on both of those legs. Uh, and sometimes, most of the time, actually, that that's in terms of union stuff, that's very unglamorous work. It's signing up one person, finding a concrete issue in your workplace that you can make a bit of a collective fuss around and get a result on, you know, like even a small thing, like, you know, Liam, I remember years ago, you agitated one for a, the right to have a water cooler, a heater at your desk, like, but it required conscious collective organisation. And now your section is one of the strongest at your workplace RMIT. So that might feel a long way from where we started, which was the real high points of the struggle. But I think it's important to have that perspective that that's all of that Wonderful story of the Builders Labourers Federation. None of it would have been possible if it had just been, oh, let's get a progressive unionist along to speak at our rally. No, that was based on real rank and file organisation that had been developed over years, tested in a whole series of battles. And then, you know, a lot of those Builders Labourers Federation uh, members, having had their horizons, uh, you know, dramatically widened by being part of, you know, being more powerful than the boss, uh, were open to an argument from, um, a, a very large leadership group in, in the Builders Labourers Federation saying, look, we when we step out of work, we live in a community. We want to be doing things that help everyone in that community, including ourselves and our family, our neighbours, you know, the rest of the working class, looking after uh, historic buildings, looking after, you know, realising that none of us are going to go forward while Aboriginal people are oppressed, while, uh, you know, women are excluded from the workforce, like, you know, making a serious... Uh, effort on all of those sort of issues so anyway yeah so i think yeah that, that's a general picture and some qualifiers i think on how we can use those lessons today yeah i think that's really useful and my final point i guess just on the the kind of scale of the challenge and climate change thinking about it i think that the thing that the blf 
shows us and that those workers realised is that it's us who make the world what it is and it's us who have the potential to make it into a different world. And so when we say we have a world to win, we really mean it. We're saying we, the working class, can make this world what we want it to be. And the BLF kind of showed us how that was possible, you know, on on a smaller scale than we need. But that principle that, you know, someone's name might be on the drawings of the Sydney Opera House, but a whole lot of people collectively built that building that, you know, is an icon of Australian landscapes and so on. You know, like we're the ones who make everything, who do all the work, who um, without our labour, capitalism can't really function. So just even holding on to that idea I think can sometimes um, point you in the right direction of what we need to do um, to change the world. Yeah, agree. And obviously those ideas don't just hang around in the ether, like randomly connecting with people's brains, like those ideas are carried by human beings and human organisations. So taking us back to one of the early points, like unless that um, political perspective, that social perspective that you've been talking about, that, you know, it's, it's our hands and our brains and our millions and billions that... Like that is the force that keeps the whole world going is the labour of working class people and therefore we can transform it. That has to be embodied in an organisation um, to, to be effective and to make history in the way that, you know, just as, you know, a version of those ideas, not a perfect version or all sorts of problems with the Communist Party, but, you know, it was those sorts of ideas and those convictions that people had been one to, that had studied, that had learned lessons from history that, that fed into that there's a whole stream of, um, you know, radical and revolutionary political thought that, that fed into the education of the Jack Mundys of, you know, the Kevin Cooks of the David Thomasons of the, you know, of the so many, um, you know, thousands of builders, laborers who made history. So that is definitely one part of the story of the Builders Laborers Federation that we should never forget. Thank you. And so share this episode, keep the stories alive tell your friends um and listen to some of our other ones as well if you are interested in getting more involved in in socialist politics thank you again jerem thank you ros liam team yep uh, you're listening to red flag radio and we have a world to win <laughs> <laughs>